For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of worth. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Saturday, everyone. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Happy whatever it is that you are celebrating today. Welcome to Richard Skipper Celebrates. If this is your first time here, welcome. My show is about celebrating, celebrating life, celebrating art, celebrating whatever it is that we can find to celebrate in these very dark times that we are living in. And yes, we can find some things to celebrate. I celebrate music and I celebrate the arts. And I'm celebrating today Joanna Gleason, who I am such a huge fan of. And I am so excited to be sharing this moment. I may even be able to tell her about the time that I was a gorilla behind box number three on Let's Make a Deal. True story. It happened. But there are so many things that we can talk about today. Uh, it's award season. Uh, Stephen Sondheim, last night, I don't know how many of you got a chance to see the incredible PBS special, Celebrating Company and the evolution of company. And what I loved about it last night was the fact that theater and the arts are fluid and it can change. And at one moment in the show last night, Stephen Sondheim even said that if the director had decided to uh, make Bobby a dog, that he probably would have gone along with it because she is so brilliant at what she was doing. So it's all about going with the flow and accepting. And uh, there's so many things that we can celebrate today. But again, as I said, we are in the midst of award season. We are heading towards the Tony Awards, uh, which are happening live again this year on June 12th. And I will be watching uh, from the comfort of my home. Uh, I have had the good fortune of being at the Tony Awards. And I've gone to a couple of Tony Award parties. Uh, several years ago, uh, I campaigned for Tommy Toon to get his Lifetime Achievement Award on air instead of prior to the show. And through a lot of petitions, they listened. And Tommy invited me to the after party at Carlisle. And that was quite an excitement. But I never had the excitement of walking up to get a Tony Award. But our guest today did. And I'd like to uh, take you back to that moment right now. And on the other side, we will meet Joanna Gleason, Tony Award winning Joanna Gleason. Here she is. When I started in the theater, all I could think about was getting a job. And once I got the job, I started hoping for a couple of lines, you know, maybe my own song. And then I started wondering how my name might look <laughs> above the title. And while I was at it, what about a nomination? And while I was dreaming, I thought, why not go all the way? Mm. And um, sometimes it happens. You won. So did you. Mm -hmm. And I took that statue home and I stared at it and I waited to feel different. <laughs> and I waited. And I was still looking at it when I fell asleep. And the next day, I woke up and I headed back to the theater and back to the audience. 
which is why we do this in the first place. I agree. Mm -hmm. The nominees for the best performance by a leading actress in a musical are Alison Frazier, Romance, Romance. <laughs> Joanna Gleason, Into the Woods. <laughs> Judy Kuhn, Chess. And Patti LuPone, Anything Goes. And the winner is Joanna Gleason! who have been through this before all said to me whatever you do when they read the name don't stand up because you're going to think you hear your name <laughs> I'm uh, I am overwhelmed I have been given this by one of the great gifts to our production Bernadette Peters I want to thank her we have the most spectacular cast and what's been overwhelming is the love and affection I feel there every night which you feel from all of us. It's genuine. They're a bunch of trapeze artists and they fly through the air and they catch each other. And they're the best and first and foremost among them is Chip Zion, without whom I cannot take the journey every night. And we have a thrilling crew and wardrobe and hair department that makes everything work. And our thanks to the producers and uh, it's about parents and children, largely, and I have the best of both, and I want to thank my husband, Michael, for everything. And my son, Aaron, about whom this play is for me in so many ways every night. I am completely undone, but I have to say to Paul Gemignani in the pit, who watches me like a hawk, and a good thing, too. And to James and Stephen, who for the past two years have treated me really like a collaborator on this project. And though you think I felt like a baker's wife, I've really felt for two years like Cinderella at the ball. Thank you for the slipper. What a great speech. <laughs> Welcome. I was not in my body that whole night. <laughs> so, well, you know, you I, 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 I saw an interview where you said that you got whiplash after that moment. You could see it. my head goes, whoa, like that, because I did not think I was going to hear my name. And I, I, my head flung back and it hurt for a week. <laughs> so obviously you go into this business, you, which we're going to talk about that path in a moment. You, uh, you don't go into this business, uh, at least I don't think you do. Uh, for the awards, and the awards are the gravy that come along. But when something like that happens, no matter what happens for the rest of your career, you are always Tony Award winning Joanna Gleason, which is just an amazing achievement in this business. And I'll tell you what I really love about that moment, that all of you are still working in the theater. Yes. Yes. In fact, Chip Zion just finished doing a musical, Barry Manilow's musical, Harmony, 
and he had been in Caroline or Change. And, you know, we keep going. I'm doing my show. I just directed a feature film that I wrote. I mean, we just keep going. And it that's the point, I think, for an artist. You just keep making as where you can and how you can. And did you see the PBS special last night on Stephen Sondheim and Company? No, I think I'll get a chance to come around again, yes. It, it is just absolutely amazing. And just the the journey, and of course, in the middle of this journey, uh, of course, just as they are about to celebrate Stephen Sondheim's 90th birthday, opening on Broadway, all of us are hit with COVID. And yeah. your show that you're about to open at Feinstein's 54 Below is called Out of the Eclipse. Uh, mm -hmm. And there are so many meanings with that title and True. this show, with what you've gone through, not only with COVID, uh, but the loss of your parents and losing them in such close proximity to each other. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Richard, because I wrote the show and I have performed the show before we shut down, before COVID. And the natural progression of things in life was that my parents at 90 and 96, well, you could expect that we were going to lose them. We did. And it was really only weeks apart after two long parallel declines, which was difficult. But I think all the time about the people who had no time to reconcile this. Do you know who the losses that, that, that came like, like an unseen enemy and just came and took people's families and tore them apart? That to me, it's still unfathomable to me what we have been through and we are still going through the aftershocks of it and still have to realize it's a real thing you know, and we need to protect each other and ourselves. I, I don't want to get political and I'm not going to get political here, but the fact that we are so divided in this country right now at a time when the, the, when something is so crucial as what we are fighting right now, and then knocking at our back door, this thing called monkeypox and Legionnaires just popped its head up again in the Bronx. Uh Talk about you know, into, I think talk about into mother, the woods. Yes, mother nature, <laughs> mother nature has had it with us. She's just done. She said, I gave you this beautiful place. You have messed it up. You've trashed the joint, the air, the water, everything. <laughs> like, I'm going to send all these things to you. And we just had to go, all right, all right, folks. This is where you turn to science, not politics. Absolutely. Now, I want to, my word of the day is self-reliance. And I want to ask what that word means to you. And when you first realized in your personal life and in your career where you had to be self-reliant, when it really resonated strongly with you. And I'm using this word today, uh, everyone who's watching, um, on the 31st, uh, you are doing a live stream from Feinstein's 54 Below. And so you comment with this uh, at the end of the show today, I'm going to be giving a lucky viewer today uh, the live stream as my gift uh, for yes. Joanna being here today. So uh, thank you. And uh, it's my gift. So uh, you, you'll be, uh, even though I have a show at the same time, I'm still giving the gift. You can come back and watch me on demand later. rivals. <laughs> um, yes. You asked me about self-reliance. It took me many, many years to decide which voice am I listening to in my head, frankly. The one of the critic, the one that comes in to spoil everything, the one that is the cheerleader. 
you know, the, the one that fortifies every negative thought you've ever had about yourself. You know, no matter what people say to you, we all have this other voice in our head put there early on. Everybody has one that is the kind of like the denier, you know, the, 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 the one that gets in the way. And it took me many, many years to say, no, not you. And to just say, you know, I know who I am. I know who I am to other people. And I, I can start to believe some of the things uh, that I've always wanted to believe. And, I, and there became this kind of column of authenticity, I guess is the word, where I knew I could turn to myself to figure things out. Good for you. Uh, I mean, they're, uh, they're called saboteurs. Those saboteurs yeah, yeah. that are behind you, that are always there. Uh, uh, you know, Harvey Firestein has a, a new book out that's amazing. And, I, and the brilliance of his title is I Was Better Last Night. Every actor in every performer in the world knows exactly what that means. We all do it. When you come to the dressing room after the show, I'll go, ah, you should have seen me last night. You know, because there's like, we can't help ourselves. Time Daly tells a great story that when she was a young girl that her father took her to see uh, uh, James Earl Jones in The Great White Hope. And that she goes backstage and she tells James Earl Jones, and she said it was that pivotal moment that she decided that she wanted to go into this business. And she's, oh, Mr. Jones, this was so incredible. And he said to her, you should have been here last night. It was a better performance. And yeah. she said, but Mr. Jones... I wasn't here last night. This is it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Joanna, I start our shows with a uh, surprise question. It's so surprised. I haven't even looked at it. So I don't even yeah. know what the question is that I'm going to ask you. And the, and I love this question. Are you a cat or a dog person? Dog. Dog do all the have, way. Do you have a dog now? Yes, we have a dog. What do yes. you have? We have Lucy, the black lab, who has, we think, one element of hound in her because of the way she, oh, is because her bark has a lot of hound, hound and I'm a, a dog. We are dog people. I had cats growing up. That's fine. They're fine. They don't, I don't know. I'm a little allergic to them, but dogs all the way. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, you grew up in Toronto. Uh, you, of just course. Till I was five. Just so I was six, then we moved to the States. Uh, but I, I go there because I, I asked for a photograph of you at five. There's a reason for this, and I'm pulling this up now. Here you are with your brother. I love this photograph. Um, do you have any recollection of the location, this photograph, and your memories of this? And then I will go with my questions about this photograph. Yeah, absolutely. My, that's my brother, Richard. He's two years younger. And we have a sister, Sharon, who's she's 14 years younger than I am. Mom and dad had a baby. Talk about a surprise. <laughs> she was a surprise. Um, Richard and I, this is taken in Canada. We are, I think, in Winnipeg visiting my grandparents and my, each came from eight children and nine children and, you know, all the cousins. So I think we are sitting somewhere like the Lanark Gardens Apartments in Winnipeg, Canada. My I guess. love this. Uh, I asked for a five-year-old photograph because to me, the five-year-old, uh, and I've said this in previous shows, I sound like a broken record, I know. Uh, to me, the five-year-old is the purest self. It's that time before uh, you start school and teachers start telling you who you should be or who you shouldn't be. Um, tell us a little bit about the five-year-old self. Uh, I mean, obviously, your father's in the business. Uh, 
you, uh, when were you first aware of the fame of your father? And uh, when did you decide that you wanted to go into this business? And obviously you chose a different path. Yeah. Um, dad never really brought uh, work home. That was the deal. Um, we knew he was on television. I think I really wasn't aware of that until I was maybe 10 or 11 in mm -hmm. some shows. We were in New York and he went to California to do a show called Video Village, which was a game show where people walk around the board like it's a, like it's a, mm -hmm. a, a board game. Um, we knew he was on television. Uh, we didn't think about it. It, it. He didn't have, you know, showbiz friends, or if he did, they were the writers. They were writers and producers and not a lot of actors and stuff. They played show tunes in the house. They took us to the theater on Broadway when we lived in New York. But I didn't grow up in that, the way a lot of kids in show business grow up, in the spotlight, you know. Um, that was not, maybe it comes from being Canadian. <laughs> they were just much more, you know, like, let's just, that's work and this is home. But when so, I knew, I didn't know, I knew when I was 10 and I was in the school play, at uh, the Roosevelt School in New Rochelle, New York, New Rochelle. Um, I knew when I got on stage there and had to actually even speak Spanish, which was an odd what was uh, What was the play? Oh, it was called, I'm going back 62 years. It was called Cholula Celebrates, about a town. I had a, I had a Mexican pe peasant blouse on and a beautiful skirt, and I had to say some things in Spanish. You know, like, I don't think there was a, an entire Latino kid in the school but this is what we were doing, you know, at that time. But it was about being on stage and feeling totally at home. Totally at home. We moved a lot when I was a kid. So the place that always felt the same to me was on stage. Well, Franklin Jella talks about in his book that moment where you step from the darkness into the light. Mm -hmm. uh, do you remember that first moment of stepping from the darkness into the light on stage where you knew, as you said, that you were at home? Yeah, because what it means in the dark, the, out there in the darkness are the parents and the teachers and the friends that you don't get along with <laughs> or do at school. The light goes off on them. And you have this, all, it feels even though there's a fourth wall, this hermetically sealed, you know, environment where your alliances are with the other people on stage and you've all made a pact tell this story and there's a director protecting you and there's choreographers and music and, all, and you are all in this together. It's not a family in the sense of this one's the favorite and this one hates this one and this was it. You know, they say, oh, we're such a family. Well, yeah, I've had that feeling, but not, it doesn't feel like family. It feels like, um, it feels like a core, you know, it feels like the core to ballet. It feels like a, a troop. It, it feels like, you know, something with a common purpose. Well, you use the word in your uh, Tony speech, collaboration. And, yeah. you know, so that continues with the work that you do. Uh, yeah. So this play that you were doing, was that an isolated incident or there are other plays that came uh, soon after that? Well, that, that was 10. So then things didn't start up again until I, my family and I moved to California from New York. And uh, it started in high school, Beverly Hills High School, Mr. John Engel. 
And I would watch as Richard Dreyfus was on campus and Albert Brooks was on campus and Lorraine Newman was there and Julie Kavner was there. And I would, Julie Cobb, and I would follow everybody around. I was a freshman. I just followed them around and then I would watch the plays they were in and then I got into the theater department there and that's where things really took off. And what was that pivotal moment where you said, this is it, I'm, I'm, this is my career path. I'm gonna follow this path and I am going to go after this. I don't think there was the aha moment. The aha moment didn't come like a door that I decide to go through. I was just in it. And I knew that I was the most myself and having the most fun when I was in it. I was also a good student. So it's not like everything else fell away. And I was also, you know, a good, a good kid. Um, mm -hmm. Really act out or I missed out on a lot of fun because <laughs> I didn't, it wasn't really <laughs> wasn't a, a wild thing in high school, but um, uh, I just knew. And, and everybody sort of assumed, because they thought, because dad was in show business, they sort of assumed a kind of lineage thing. Although he was in television, even though he did some summer stock and, and things like that. And he had a beautiful singing voice. Um, they assumed, and, and that is kind of the, in broad strokes, the family business. And mom uh, had been an actress as a young uh, woman, a, a, a radio actress. And a model, and then she went back and got her master's at UCLA um, in film, and she made movies, produced movies, and she produced and won an Emmy. So there's a there is, and my brother's in the business, and my sister is in the business. So there's there is that, yeah. This is the family. This is our family crest. You know, you know, we have our family crest, and then we go from town to town with the tambourine, and we go, yeah, well, the show business give us a dime. You know, like this. So we're all sort of cut from that cloth. But I didn't make a decision, it just sort of found me. So what brought you back to New York? Was it a show that brought you back to New York or did you come back to New York to pursue work? For the first time, first time, I auditioned for a musical by Cy Coleman and Michael Stewart to be directed by Joe Layton called I Love My Wife. Yes. And I was, I was living in LA and the audition, they auditioned in LA and I auditioned and um, uh, was it Bo Wilson? I wonder if that was Bo Wilson. I had some champion in the business, an older gentleman who saw me in things like, there you go, who saw me in Hamlet and who saw me in How to Succeed, whatever whatever I was seen in, they put my name up for it. I auditioned in California and they said, you need to fly back to New York for the callbacks. Now they weren't paying for that. And um, friends came over and played uh, Jeopardy, at the board game Jeopardy and we played for money and you know, I had enough money, I won <laughs> enough money for the $400 to fly to New York and stay with friends and audition for Cy Coleman and Michael Stewart. And at that time, Joe Layton, who was directing. And uh, and I got, I stood on a stage with a ghost light and I auditioned. And that was my first Broadway musical. There was something about being able to audition on a Broadway stage instead of auditioning in a rehearsal studio. True. Yeah, I know. It, it's just very different uh, feeling. So. What was the biggest change within you personally uh, getting into that first, this was your first major break in the business. Uh, what did that do for you psychologically uh, in terms of confidence, in terms of solidifying uh, Joanna Gleason being on the path of her career? I think because I, I, I think I was happy for the first time in my life. Truly happy. I mean, I'm a happy kid. I was not a 
troubled kid. And I did a lot of things that looked right and they felt right at the time. But something inside me just said, this would be Peggy Lee. Is that all there is? You know, is that all there is? Is that all there is? And then this, suddenly I realized, no, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it meant reshuffling things, and it meant losing things, and it meant giving up things, and it meant making big changes and being true to myself. Something has guided me. Richard, I'll tell you, I don't even know what to call it. Something has guided me nicely uh, uh, away from, you know, off the path and back onto uh, the healthier one, better one. I want to go back to the word because it's a, a word that uh, resonates strongly with me, uh, and that's collaboration. What were the lessons, the life lessons that you learned from that company, Michael Stewart, Cy Coleman, uh, everyone that you worked with on your first Broadway show that have stayed with you throughout your career? They had faith in me. They cast me. Do you know what I mean? And Cy was, Cy was wonderful. Um, a, a musician like no other. Uh, Michael Stewart was lovely, sweet, sweet, wonderful man. When things weren't working, we got to sort of talk about them um, and make them work. Uh, uh, Joe Layton uh, fell ill and Gene Sachs came in to direct us for Broadway. Um, you know, our cast was Lenny Baker. I think mm. one of Tony. Lenny one of yeah. Tony. Inspired physical actor and comedian. Eileen Graff, to this day, one of my dear, dear friends. And with a dear voice. friend as well, just love her. Uh, the voice from an angel, and I love her so much. And Jimmy Naughton, who lives mm -hmm. up the road from us here in Connecticut, also a dreamboat. So I, I had a really um, wonderful first, first time being surrounded by people. And I thought, well, I'm the new kid here, and I just hope I don't mess it up. And you didn't. I didn't. And you didn't. And uh, and then Into the Woods comes along, and uh, Sondheim. I mean, the, the and and it's coming back to Broadway. I know. And yeah. you know, it's interesting. Earlier this week, are you familiar with Jeff Harner? Are, do you know his music? And he yes. has an incredible new uh, Sondheim uh, CD that's dropping on the seventeenth. I had him on the show earlier this week. Phenomenal. Nice. I'm telling everyone, get this CD. It's just so glorious. Um, and uh, uh, you, I mean, to those of us who worship Sondheim from afar, you got to know him and work with him. What was the genius of Sondheim as a human beyond that godlike figure that so many oh. of us know of? Uh, you know, he he um, he really was a teacher at heart because when he saw something in a young performer, a composer, a director, he nurtured it. He was generous with his praise, really tender and generous with his praise um, and encouragement. And I, I just think, you know, when you have such a gift, uh, such a monumental gift as he had, and at the same time, you're such a human being, and such a mensch, you know, I, I love him very, very much. It's hard to find that, both those things in, in somebody. Now, on Tuesday night, um, Barry Bostwick is going to be on the show, uh, along with the original cast of Grease, plug I'm putting in there. 
And that brings us to the next musical. Uh, and uh, I got in my show. What was that? <laughs> I have a whole Nick and Nora section in my show. Well, do you want to talk about that now, or do do everyone does everyone have to go to the show to see what you? Yeah, you do, because there's very very funny stories, and you know, valiantly, uh, Barry and I were out there every night with these bullseyes painted on our tuxes because the show was just a terrible job, <laughs> just a fiasco from the beginning. But he was Grace under pressure and a and a darling, and uh, we uh, there we stood, you know, there we stood in front of the firing squad. But but you, but you got to go through these things. You know, it, it makes the best stories. And, uh, of course, it's where I met Chris 31 years ago. And God bless both of you. And it's uh, still going strong. And uh, yes, I, I want to I, I jump way ahead. And okay. I want to talk about uh, the, the gift. And I do consider it a gift of being available and present to be there for your parents as they're transitioning uh, out of this life into the next. Um, can you take us and talk a little bit about that? Or is that something that you would prefer not to talk about at this time? No, frankly, it's, it's uh, the show is, is based yes. around it. The, the yes. show is based on lo losing them. In fact, it was, uh, it was August of the, the year they died that had that total eclipse of the sun and mom died on one side of it and dad died on the other. And literally it was this thing I went through, you know, this kind of darkness. Um, I learned after they passed. I learned and felt how to think of them without them being my parents. That's who they were, who they were to each other, what their young life was like, and how funny they were, how funny and idiosyncratic they were and what I learned from them and what it made me think about at this point in my life, because you know I'm not in act one anymore or act two. In fact, we may have already had intermission. <laughs> Just like, you know, what's next, what's next? And, and, and it was it was a very, very difficult uh, four years, really, of the both of them just simultaneous declining in different ways. But it's how each of them approached it, vastly different. A uh, uh, lot of lessons learned, and it all ties in. Everything in the show ties into everything else, including what seems like a digression of going to Nick and, the Nick and Nora stories, but not really. And... It just, it builds and builds. It's a, not a cabaret show per se, because I'm not one of those amazing women or men who, who, who just holds you with, uh, with songs and songs. There's lots of singing in it, and I do lots of singing in it. Particularly, it builds to these beautiful numbers at the end, which end, end big. But there's a lot of stories, because I'm a storyteller, and they all tie together, and it all came from not being able to process that at the time. And realizing that for me, process is art. Would you ever consider writing a book about this chapter in your life and in dealing with this process of uh, your parents passing on? Well, you'll see the show really is that. The show really is the, the entertaining, funny TED Talk, <laughs> you know, <Okay>. uh, <laughs> Philosophical, um, autobiographical, funny again, very musical thing. And and after I and, and having done this show, and I and I made a short movie actually literally about my mom's last day. I made a short. It's just being entered into festivals now. Wrote and directed it. Um, 
Then I'm moving on. I'm moving on to wanting to tell other women's stories. When did you first go into the world of cabaret? And was that an easy transition for you? No, it wasn't at all. I'd been asked, oh my God, so many times. And in fact, um, Mark Cortali helped me go play oh, in Princeton Province. Yes. Right? right, because it was Kevin Sessoms. Do you know the writer Kevin Sessoms? Oh, yes, 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 well, yes. Kevin was pedaling on his bicycle. My husband and I were up there just for a, we had rented a house for a week. And we're walking through Provincetown, and a guy on a bicycle, very well dressed, goes around and goes, Oh my God, Joanna Gleason, I love you. And then he comes back and he goes, Hi, I said, Who are you? He says, Kevin Sessoms, you should play up here. So I reached out to Mark Cortali, and Mark said, You know, I happen to represent this string quartet called Well Strung. And I said, I've got a night. The first part of the night is a play by Michael Patrick King, just me and about 55 light bulbs. And then I'll go into uh, singing songs. And we did. We did, we did that up in Provincetown, but then we made an. I made an act. I made another autobiographical story, four fifty four below, using Well Strung, a lot of stories, and they. I felt obliged, Richard, to reference all my theater work. So people came up, Jimmy Naughton or Eileen. I don't know if Eileen came up. Chip came up, Zion, and sing the songs from the shows and do all that while telling my story of how hard it has been. I've had a sort of bi-coastal life for, for reasons. Um, but this show, I didn't feel obliged to use music you all know. There is some. There's quite a lot that you do know, but then there's some that you don't, which because it acts as uh, connective tissue for the stories I'm telling. So I'm not a cabaret artist by any stretch of the imagination. This is like, this is a, these two were solo shows, which 54 Below was generous enough to, I'm to say. I'm going to disagree with you on that statement because cabaret is, there's so many levels to cabaret. And yeah. uh, as a storyteller, uh, you very much are a cabaret artist. So, well, you are. So, uh, and you very much have your place in cabaret. And uh, so, Yes, you are a cabaret artist. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that voice in the back of your head again. So that's exactly right. Right. Who do you think you are? What are you doing there? Yeah. Yes. So, um, do do you enjoy performing in Provincetown? It's a completely different vibe. I mean, I love performing in Provincetown. The audience is there. They are out to have a good time. So they really are. Uh, if I go back at some time, I will tailor a whole different show, less narrative and more write to them, write no fourth wall and do the stuff, you know, do some stuff I love. Um, yeah, I'd love to go back sometime. So you, you've done this show before and then mm -hmm. we have this uh, little bump in the road called COVID. Uh, what did you learn about yourself over the past two plus years? Um, we've all gone through transformation uh, mm -hmm. in many ways. What have you learned about yourself as an artist over the past two years? I was at first, uh, like everybody I knew, uh, inert, absolutely inert, binging TV series and not doing anything, not wanting to talk to anybody, mm -hmm. uh, not going anywhere, mm -hmm. certainly. Uh, then something in me, that, that I act, that I just on a chance, in June of 2021, 
and I think I'd already maybe had my first vaccine. I don't can't remember, but a lot of things are vaccine timed for how safe. <laughs> you know, exactly. You know, you can start to date things by. I sent a a feature that I had written. I sent it to a woman who turns out to live two miles from me, to another mutual friend who lives up the road half a mile, and this woman who is. Uh, um, produced another feature film um, and been in the entertainment industry for a while, said, I love it. And she said, I'm in. And suddenly I thought, you're in? What does that mean? She said, I'm in. I'm going to produce your movie. And then I stopped thinking about COVID. And uh, my production team of friends in California jumped, dropped everything, jumped on board. We got this movie together between Delta and Omicron in LA with all the protocols. Nobody tested positive the whole time. We shot a movie. I spent nine weeks out there and I thought, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I can't believe I get to do it in the middle of all of this. But everybody was on the same page. Everybody was careful. Everybody was there, you know, to do their best. And we got it done. And then when it was over and 54 Below asked me to do this show, I thought, that it, that's, and I was at Carnegie Hall one night and I've been at Symphony Space one night. I thought, I know how to do this. I know how not to feel that life has stopped. I just know how to be as careful as I can be, but keep going. And then I just need, by agreement, the people that I'm doing this with to be as careful and considerate of my health as I will be of theirs. What is your ultimate goal that you hope that audiences will come away with after they come to, or do you have any idea of what you want audiences to come away with? Having done the show in L.A. at the Renberg, uh, at the LGBTQ theater, the Renberg in L.A., which is a beautiful theater, we did it there. We did it at the Fairfield University. It has a gorgeous theater. We did it there once. No matter where we've done this show, when it's over, people are still seated, and they stop me, and they say, you know, I have a story about my dad, and, and, and or I have a story about my mom, or you make me think of the time when I... And they've been very moved and there are things that they remember or they've been laughing. But I think in being so specific, everybody gets a chance to go back and remember something this Memorial Day. Remember, you know, these people, some of these people that we have lost and how we want to remember them. I want to go back, you know, when you were younger, uh, what is the greatest life lesson that you feel that you learned from both of your parents? And then I want to go to just before they passed the greatest lesson that you learned through their passing. My mother was an interesting woman, very, very bright. And she secretly believed in magic and faith. And she had said to me, I'll be in the lights. She did this thing with her finger. She wouldn't point at you. She'd instead, she'd, she'd keep her finger like this and go, you. I go, mom, that's pointing. She said, no, this is pointing. She said, you, I'll be in the lights. And my mother has shown up in lights. This is a whole other story about when my sister and I are together in LA, how a light bulb that has water in it outside the solar lights in the bush that never work, one light goes on when my sister and I are together. Anyway, mom believed in that. Mom had a very kind of quiet, amalgamated, spiritual, <laughs> magical life. My dad, very practical, very much, you know, this is what it is. Um, he didn't, uh, he had no spiritual, he was observant, they were Jewish. He, had, he was very observant and he was very, um, he was a soulful man, easily moved you know, to tears, but 
nothing out of the realm of this is now, this is now. And his, what he was at the end, my father could not believe he was actually dying, didn't want to talk about it. He wasn't afraid. He absolutely was not afraid. He told me that. But here's the wall, and here's my dad. And, you know, my dad was going to go till he just hit the wall. And he did. And it was very quick and very peaceful on a very special day, which I talk about in the show, a kind of extraordinarily special day, and how and where that happened. My mom, I think, left earlier than she physically left. She's very rich imagination, a very rich, full, you know, writerly life. And I think she went somewhere that she loved and lingered. She lingered for quite a while. And they both died at home, which was nice because we were with them at home. After many, many hospital stays, they ended up being in the house where they lived for 55 years. So that was actually... That's beautiful. After 54 Blow, what's next for you? I mean, are you going to be doing this show in other venues as well? Uh, is- I don't know. I would like very much to go uh, someplace else. It's a big show. There end up being nine of us, you know, at, at one point on stage. And so it's hard for people to bring it in because it's expensive to bring nine people, you know, to bring nine people. Um, will I ever do a version of it that's smaller, more consolidated? Maybe. But I love my singers, the Moontones, who are three virtuoso performers who came together to become the Moontones for me. And I love my musicians. Who are your singers? Who are they? Uh, All right. Christiana Cole, gorgeous. Christine Cornell and Michael Portasio. Individual careers, big, fantastic. Uh, Justin Rothberg on all the stringed instruments. He plays the mandolin, the banjo, and the guitar in this show. He's an ace. Kate Spingarn on the cello. And Del Robles. Del Robles on percussion not a drum set, an old rusted iron, bells around his ankle, some a washboard. It's just so <laughs> inventive and fantastic. And then my music director, Jeffrey Kleitz, who's yes. been my collaborator and Jeffrey, this show and the prior show. So and again, my, it goes back to collaboration. It's all there again. I need people up there with me. I need people up there with me, not just because the voice goes, who do you think you are? You're boring by yourself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> how did you, I mean, how... I mean, how does the songs come together? Are they the voice, those voices again? How do you choose the songs that you are going to tell in this? Songs have come to me through the years, and I think, why has this song come to me? And then I realize, that song goes here. And then I start to write around it. And then, oh, I've loved this song for years. This, this is why I know this song. Yeah, like There's like no wasted, no scrap material. And is the show frozen, as Merman used to say, or has the show, or has it evolved a little bit uh, over time? It's evolved a little bit over time. It certainly feels different to do it now than prior to the pandemic. Um, I, I love doing it. I really do, and uh, I, and I hope we get to do it more. Oh, I, I I wish that I was available to see it. Um, we're going to give away, uh, like I said, a, a live stream. Uh, I am going to pull this up uh, again. The work is self-reliance. And uh, as we do our wind down, I've got some questions just for the fun of it to ask you. Uh, and uh, this will uh, bring us up to the uh, giveaway. And uh, the first question I'm going to ask you is, when did you have the weakest self-confidence in your career? And what got you through it? Oh, gracious. Well, I 
got fired from a show. That's fun. Um, and it's humiliating. And at that point, I had to say to myself, did I suck? And it turned out I was actually too young for the role and they hired somebody older. It doesn't matter. You know, every bad audition I've done. And Richard, I am not a great auditioner. I, I have auditioned kind of famously well for a couple of things, but then mostly not because I was never prepared. I didn't really, when you don't think of yourself as a singer and you don't have the book of songs and you don't, you know, you're not ready to go in and you don't take it seriously because you think that you're a fraud or you're just an actress or all that. I wanted to get over all of that crap. Um, I, I just think all of those auditions where I didn't get it were a lesson. Both okay. A, A, be prepared, and B, then find the thing you want to do that you're going to put in the work to do. Well, I have a friend and he says, rejection is God's protection. And I yeah. always, in every time I go, okay, <laughs> I'm listening. I'm listening. Yeah, um, yeah. When have you been the most motivated in your career? I was motivated. Usually I'm challenged. The very first time Jennifer Tepper at 54 Below said, will you do a show? And that's when I said, all right, somebody's asked me, so I'll call Mark Cortali and get real strong. And then I was motivated, and then I, I had to write for a deadline, and then I wrote. But really motivated when this movie came together. And I flew out to L.A., and I was in pre-production, and I got up every morning full of energy. I never got tired. I never got tired once on these long days. We had temperatures of 104 out in the desert of California with rattlesnakes and a meth lab next door. And we were in town, and it was raining. It was humid, and I had spider bites and mosquitoes and everything. Or it was freezing when we finished the shoot. It was 30 degrees, 28 degrees. I, I've never been so happy because I was getting to tell the story I had spent years writing and, and thinking about and, and, and enrolling 50 other people in the same vision. That's motivating to me. You enroll them in this common vision. Everybody brings their best. You let them. You ask 100 questions. You answer 100 questions. And you make a thing. You make a thing together. That's that's wonderful. Um, which sibling is, this is an interesting question, which sibling is or was favored most by your parents? Each for different reasons. I, firstborn, right? The, 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 the golden firstborn child and first grandchild of, of the grandparents. I'm the one who did somersaults in her crib. I'm the one that was hilarious. I'm the one who had the big cheeks, I don't know if you can see in the picture, but the, they had the big cheeks, you know, like, like this, and little, little, little eyes and big cheeks like that, and I was adorable. I was adorable, very pudgy baby. Um, so I was favored at first. Then two years later came my brother, and it was a boy, and he was quieter because I was noisy and gentle, and it seemed like mom favored him. You know, mothers and sons. I have a son. I totally get that. And then my sister came along, this little sunbeam, 12 years after my brother, and she became everybody's favorite. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. Uh, TV series or movie that you could watch over and over and over. You mentioned earlier that uh, at the beginning of COVID, you binge watched a lot. So what was your source to binge? There were two series. One was called Station Eleven which was dystopian and futuristic, but I have to tell you, it's all about art at the end of the day. So moving. We wept and wept when that one ended. Uh, 
There was another one called Giri Haji, which was, uh, I think, Japanese and British. Giri, G-I-R-I slash Haji, H-A-J-I. Giri Haji was gorgeous and beautiful. We had watched Schitt's Creek to just laugh our asses off because Catherine O'Hara is a, she's a goddess to me. Um, but over and over again, movies I will watch over and over. I will watch Hitchcock's uh, Notorious mm. over, over and over. I will watch Heaven Can Wait over and over. I will watch Tootsie over and over. I will watch Cousin. Cousin. Yes. Yeah. I will watch Babette's Feast over and over again. It's about art. Mm -hmm. um, Cousin Cousine, a, a gorgeous film. Um, God, there's, there's so many that when they come on. I'll tell you, I also liked the movie Interstellar. I'm a bit of a science and mm -hmm. uh, physics wonk. I read books on physics and things like that, quantum physics. And I, I'm taken with just who do we think we are, <laughs> you know, and what are we made of? Um, what was the biggest upset that you encountered while working on this show? And how did you get through that? Well, working on this current? Yes. Current. Perhaps it was COVID. Maybe that was it. It was definitely, definitely it was COVID. No. Definitely. Because you think to yourself, who cares about what you're talking about? You know, who, who cares about anything right now? <laughs> you know, except they do. You come in, everybody will drop everything for an hour to hear a good story. And that's what I'm hoping. Yeah. And things have come back. The theater has come back. And, you know, there, there would not have been a time to do this in the middle of COVID and even do it just virtually because the loss and the ways people were dying were just so untenable and earth-shaking and monumental in great numbers that to talk about two people dying at about the time that you think on the timeline they would, 90 and 96, seemed tone deaf. Uh, but now, now it's, it's a different, feels different to tell the story. If you had to stop doing 10% of what you are currently doing in your life, what one thing would you give up? Worrying. Wow. Good. Do you worry a lot? I do. But as my dad used to say when I'd come to him about anything political or in the news or whatever, like he goes, it's a blip. And I'd say, Dad, it's not a blip when you're in it. He goes, I've been in it. It's a blip. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm going to skip this next question because it uh, this was a difficult week that we've all been through. Let's all just pray for better weeks. Um, uh, give an example yeah. of the right words at the right time in your life. The right words at the right time. My, my cousin Sam Arkoff, Samuel Z. Arkoff who was part of American International Pictures. They made a lot of movies. They made the beach blanket movies and they made horror movies. He was my cousin. And he said, he said, first of all, he said, don't believe anything anybody tells you. And I, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but he said, don't take yourself in this business too seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. I should pay attention to that one. Um, what lesson did you learn this week to help make next week a better week? Uh, this has been a very challenging week. Yes. You know, and it is separating 
reasonable people from unreasonable people. Much has in the last few years. Reasonable people with whom you can reason, who have common sense, who have executive function, who have the capacity for critical thinking, no matter what their political affiliation, those people will seek out art. The others, they don't know the difference and they don't care. They're threatened by everything. They want you to be threatened by everything. They want to demonize everything they can't understand or more can't do or haven't been invited to be part of. And then they demonize it and that's where hatred grows and they feel powerful and it's just put us on a terrible, terrible track. And you are so right. What is the main, uh, most painful thing? You mentioned earlier getting fired, you know, besides that, what is the most, without giving away the specifics because I'm about celebrating, what is the most painful thing that you've gone through in this business and what got you through it? And again, I don't want specifics or names or anything because that's not what I'm about. A painful experience. I just want to know what got you through that experience in the business. Well, there was, there was the pain of Nicanora closing, you know, and being so publicly humiliated. Everything was so such a... Oh, oh it sure a, was. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a I show got, that we were all excited about in this business. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, <laughs> but what got me through it is that I was falling in love with Chris. And that's 31 years later. That's what got me through it. A real life, a real man, real children for us to think about and take care of, real life plans. More recently, and not to be specific, what I have no tolerance, no, I have, cannot wrap my head around the fact that some people feel and completely entitled to be unkind, as if they're right. And that people do not any longer say, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you for saying what that. What is the friggin' problem with people who cannot say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I hurt you, I'm sorry that happened? What is wrong with these people? Well, I say, there's a, there's a chip missing. It's called being a grown-up. Even I don't care how old you are. If you can't say, I'm sorry to somebody face-to-face, -face, not just with an emoji, you know, the same way if you can't say I love you, the same way you can't say I'm wrong, I was so wrong. If you can't do it, you are, you can't, A, you can't be an artist, and B, you're, to me, not really a grown up. Thank you for saying that. That's great. And this is my last question. What do you consider the most valuable quality in a friend? Uh, 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 Empathy and showing up. Uh, my friends show up and they have empathy. But the greatest thing is we can pick up the phone and the minute we hear each other's voices, we can start to laugh the laugh of the damned because we know that we're going to talk about the world, right? And you just pick up the phone and go, oi. <laughs> and you just start. And then you just go, ay, where do we start? And that they know, you. that they know they're aware of the world. They don't just live in a bubble. They're aware of the world. Also, I have a lot of friends who are very proactive, very, very um, don't go anywhere for a moment. I'm going to give away uh, a live stream to your show. This is how I do this. I love this. We'll see who's going to get the, uh, who's going to win this. <laughs> Jenny Lynn Stewart, my friend. I'm so happy that I'm going to give this to you, Jenny, because she deserves it. She's wonderful. Uh, don't go anywhere. I want to say a few words, and then I'm going to give you the final word today, Joanna. So uh, wait just a moment. So I have this calendar on my desk and uh, it's random acts of kindness. And I pulled this this morning and it said today, 
donate coloring books, crayons, books, or puzzles to your local hospital. And I think this is something nice that all of us can do. I'm going to definitely do this. Uh, and I have a lot of friends who are children book writers. Uh, if you all want to reach out to me, I can recommend some of these writers. Some of them are even watching the show today who have written mm. some amazing children's books. And if mm -hmm. you can all reach out, we can donate these books to our local hospitals. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a great little gift that we can give. Uh, and uh, it's just getting outside of our own comfort zone, doing something nice for somebody else. Um, my shows, again, Richard Skipper celebrates for a reason. I'm all about celebrating. And I want to celebrate you, Joanna, as I always do. Uh, thank you for saying yes to us and being here. Uh, I thank you for being here. I hope you had a nice time. I certainly did. And from the comments, everyone else is having a great time today as well. If this is your first time today, everyone, I hope it will not be your last time. Uh, please consider subscribing to the show. Uh, leave a comment on YouTube after the show. Let me know what you think of the show. Share this with your friends. It will be available on demand after the show. Um, and even if you did not win the live stream, uh, Joanna will be at Fine Science 54 Below on the 30th and the 31st, uh, both mm -hmm. nights. Uh, it will be live streaming. And if you cannot go on the 31st, you can still get the live stream, even if you didn't win it. Uh, and if you're not able to go, give it to a friend. I always end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list, reach out to the third name on the list, and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. Try it today, Joanna. And just reach out to that third friend and let them know what they mean to you. Uh, because as my dear friend Sean Moniker says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. And as I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So <laughs> I'm going to leave the screen. I'm going to give you the final word. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with today, uh, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. Thank you. And I hope you come back sometime. Thank you. Thank you. It's all yours. Thank you. It's so interesting that you said those final words, Richard, because I end my show by saying, pick up the phone and call someone on a Sunday night just to check in. Because it's a surprise to most people. Most people don't just check in with each other. Do it. You have no idea what it means. Uh, you know, and some, half the time people will say, oh, my God, I was just thinking about you. Just do it. Connection is vital. And you know, we've been so disconnected and we've been so isolated. It's even more important. As you said, Richard, we don't know what people are going through. Just pick up the phone, call somebody on a Sunday night. Sunday nights are key because it always meant that, oh my God, tomorrow's Monday and I don't want to go back to school. Or tomorrow's Monday and I haven't finished my homework. Or tomorrow's Monday and everybody's working and I'm not. There's always, there's that little melancholy thing after all the good shows on Sunday night where you think, uh, Monday, what am I doing? That's when you call, just to let people know. So my dad said, and my mom, they lived by this credo, do for others. Take books to the hospitals, call your friends, call people you don't know that well, just find a way to do something for somebody else. It's fun.
quantifiably the happiest you can be. They've measured it. You can do something for somebody else. And good luck.